Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jim Daduchu, and this time round, we have another special guest. Now, they're coming up a little bit later on, and we're talking about jewels and what's almost metaphysical about this one is I will be talking about the history of jewels and then we will have a jewel about the elements of jewels we have different opinions on them so it is Paul from the History Rage podcast and what happened was after we recorded the episode about body snatching Please go back and have a listen to that. Burke and Hay, all that kind of good stuff. It was a lot of fun. But at the end, we started going on about dueling. This was off the record. And Greg, who was supervising the editing of all this stuff live. Well done, Greg. He's an absolute dream. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's actually turn this into another podcast because you guys really riff off each other well. So you'll be hearing that later on. The sound quality will change. I'm doing this a front bit recording it as normal. So, what is a jewel? Now, first of all, it clearly isn't just one person hitting somebody over the head with something because that goes back a long, long way. It is a more ritualized form of combat and it has two distinct origins one in the West and one in Japan as well. So, I'll do the West first, I'll do a little bit on Japan and then. We'll go into the the main event of me and Paul talking about stuff and perhaps Greg interrupting as well. Let's take Anglo-Saxon England, although similar things were happening in most of continental Europe. If we're talking about the early era of the Anglo-Saxon age, if we're talking about things like the year 700, 600, that sort of time, it was very much uncentralized government. Indeed, there was no such place as England. It was fragmented into various different Anglo-Saxon territories, such as the Kingdom of Mercia, that's the middle bit of modern England, the Kingdom of Northumbria, that's the chunk at the north of England, Wessex, East Sussex, etc. There are various different territories at various different times. The point here is that even in those areas, they didn't necessarily have full centralized control of them. 
So if there isn't central authority, there's a breakdown of law. Things are dangerous. And therefore, because of this lack of reliable centralized law enforcement and courts and legal proceedings, there were these very old types of legal codes called trials by combat and ordeals as well. Won't bother going into the ordeals, but an example of trial by combat is, imagine me and you are having a debate about who owns part of this field. I say it's my family's heritage, you say it's your family's heritage, how are we going to decide it? There's no court around. And so there was this ritualized combat. We would have a fight, and whoever won the fight, it wasn't necessarily to the death, sometimes it was, it could be to just first blood, and that's the term from the movie, first blood, whoever causes first blood, you know, that's the winner. That's a, a meaning, or you drew first blood, now it's getting serious. That kind of thing dates back to the time of dueling and goes back further to trial by combat. Now, even in the Anglo-Saxon era full of superstition, they worked out that if you're a six foot six bruiser and I'm a five foot two monk aged 60, well, it's clear who's going to win this. So you were allowed a champion. Somebody who recognized your side of the argument, who was perhaps bigger than you, could represent you in this ritualized form of combat. So the reason why that's something that doesn't happen anymore is because the structures of governance and of the judiciary spread and improved and became more stable over the centuries. Now, what's interesting is there is a movie called The Last Jewel, directed by Ridley Scott. It's pretty good. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's pretty good. It's like Rashomon in the sense that you see the same story told from three very different perspectives and you have to make up your mind as to who's telling the truth, although the movie annoyingly points you in the right direction, which the original Rashomon, directed by Akira Kurosawa, doesn't. And what it does show, and this is true, is the last example of trial by combat in Western Europe. It's in France, it's all set in France, but it's set during the Hundred Years' War. It was in the late 1300s, and by then, trial by combat had not been a regular form of judicial outcome for centuries. So even to the standards of medieval law, this was an anomaly. This was old-fashioned and indeed a sight to behold. And people, nobody had seen something like this happen before. And it's a pretty good film. Four stars rather than five stars, but it is very good. And the final fight is all kinds of historically wrong. But this was a genuine family, a genuine grievance. And this did genuinely happen, but perhaps not quite in the way that Scott decided to direct it. If you want to know more, it's in my Hollywood and History book if you, if you want to find out more about that. So the point there is that as courts became the normal place to hear your grievances, things like swearing on holy relics, and we still do that. There is a remnant of that. But the idea was a thousand years ago that if you were to swear on holy relics, then you really, really meant it or you could be stricken down by God. And that is why you still pray or swear on a holy book in a court of law anywhere in the Western world. Usually it's a Bible, but people can request a Quran or other religious tomes. So that is an echo of the ancient world. But this idea of, like, I've got a grievance with you, and now we're going to go to combat starts in the judicial era. But once we get into the full medieval era, we get things like jousting and the melees as well, mass simulated combat. And this would turn into a dueling, which really 
we can talk about the Renaissance era onwards as a format. And it moved from swords into pistols, and that's where I'm sure Paul and I are going to be talking about. Now, going into Asia, we have the samurai. And the samurai lasted from about 1000 AD into the mid-1800s. It's a remarkably long period of time. Knights and chivalry, by comparison, lasted a maximum of 400 years in Europe. So it's an incredibly long period of time for this martial class. They weren't allowed to be farmers. They weren't allowed to be monks or things like that, although sometimes they might have taken a break and become a monk, but you can't be a samurai monk. That's an oxymoron. But they were the equivalent of the knights in Europe. They were trained, and they were trained in these houses, in these groups, these these training clubs. And because of that, it led to people wanting to test their abilities, their skills against other people. Quite often it was with a bokken, which is with a wooden samurai sword. Now, it's still pretty dangerous. You can still crack ribs and hurt people, gouge out an eye or whatever. I have seen places selling bokkens, and it says specifically on them, because they look like a wooden sword. They go, this is not a toy, because they've got enough oomph to them that you can really whack your little sister around the head with it, or, or something like that. So please do not give them to children. The other form of it is the early stages. Because they were around for 800 years, samurai eras have slightly different rules to them. And from around about 1000 AD to the late 1200s, it was traditional when battle was about to be commenced. So you've literally got thousands of troops lined up against each other. If a particular samurai had a grudge against another samurai, or indeed just wanted to show their prowess, they would call them out. You know, I am Yamagata from House Makada, and I challenge you. And then they would go into the front, and they would fight to the death. It's a duel. This actually ended with the Mongol invasion, attempted invasions of Japan in the late 1200s under Kublai Khan, where clearly you got the samurai coming out going, I am Yamagata from the clan. And before they could finish the sentence, they would be shot in the throat with an arrow because that's not how the Mongols fought wars. Although it is worth pointing out there were very few Mongols in the invasion of Japan. It was largely Chinese infantry. But regardless, they came from a different culture. You don't just stand around talking. You just start fighting. So because of that, that part of the ritual of warfare reduced, but it increased when it came to these inter- house into training departments into dojos arguments between their skilled warriors so that's the east and the west summarized as to how we get from cave people banging each other over the head with clubs to a very ritualized you know there are rules and regulations to dueling and there are different different countries had different rules about it and also there was different forms of agreement as to how serious this would be like fight to the death or first blood etc all these things would be ironed out before the fight actually started and the classic thing about satisfaction so i might have wounded them but i now feel like i have had my satisfaction i've proven my point if you like this goes all the way back to the trial by combat because i beat you i am right i have won this argument really interesting idea that sort of has echoes today but now without further ado on with our esteemed guest we now got all locked into his booth of recording. Hello, Paul. Hello, how are you? Doing well. Well, we liked you so much coming in and talking about how to steal dead bodies that we thought we'd come back and talk about 
how to create dead bodies. <laughs> nicely put, nicely put, yes. My other great ludicrous obsession. So we are going to be principally talking about British dueling. We will talk a little bit about France and our cousins in the Americas as well. But what I wanted to know from yourself, because we've said just off recording, you were talking about how if you look at it purely from a historical point perspective, it doesn't actually make sense. So over to you with your thoughts. Yeah, okay. So my area of expertise is like the classic regency early 19th century pistol duel yeah pistols at dawn 10 paces turn and shoot the stuff of bridgerton and barry linden and and blackadder and blackadder (laughs) yes dueling with cannons and uh, which is interesting point actually that is one of the ones that i'll come to but blackadder out of the list that we've given there blackadder is actually the most truthful because the duke of wellington (laughs) actually fought a duel I seem to remember he only did it once. And yeah, the reputation of what he's portrayed, I mean, Blackout is a whole other story, but (laughs) nobody in that TV show acted the way they were meant to. But he did actually do a duel, but he wasn't known for dueling, was he? No, no. Most people who duel within the United Kingdom, at least, are not particularly known for it. In fact, that's very much the point, because you want to do this quite... you You want people to know that you fought a duel... You know, but you don't want to know any more details than that. Because it's as much as everybody keeps saying to me, you know, whenever I talk about this or whenever I present it, because out in living history, we do fight pistol duels as well to give the give the idea as to why, what's really going on. But one of the great myths is that it was legal. It really isn't. It's never been legal to shoot somebody in this country. Strangely enough. Yes, it never has. So this idea that it's legal is complete nonsense. Very difficult to prosecute, yes, but not legal. And therefore, to have the Duke of Wellington fight a duel whilst serving as Prime Minister, and for him not to be the only Prime Minister who's fought a duel whilst serving as Prime Minister is quite remarkable. Uh, The other one was William Pitt the Younger. But I, and of course, well, I mean, they weren't prime minister, but obviously in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, you've also got Castle Ray and Canning, haven't you, as yes. well? Yeah, um, we've got we've got a total of four prime ministers who have fought duels, two of which fought those duels whilst serving. I'm going to leave in here, so I've got to go back and have a look at what things are legal and what things are illegal, because we've had Paul on twice now. <laughs> I thought body snatching was illegal, and apparently that's fine, but I thought dueling at times was illegal, and apparently no, so I, I'm really confused now. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Condensed Histories, or what can you get away with? Uh, Confuse the uh, histories, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yes, how to commit a crime. But you were saying, looking at it from a historical perspective, makes less sense than a psychological perspective. Yeah. yeah, When and I love our historians out there, particularly kind of our academic ones and so forth, but you go in, if you've got a historian brain on, you kind of go in and you're starting to look at sources for what happened, and then you're looking at other sources for what led to that and you're going along events and times and people and situations and you're looking at this timeline of how it comes to that so how you go from this quarrel in an opera to meeting in Hyde Park at six o'clock in the morning with a pair of pistols and a couple of friends and shooting at each other and it's always referred to as honor and no matter which way you look at it if you're looking at it like that it never makes any sense to anybody You think, why are they fighting this over honour? Why are people being killed over this honour? What the hell is it? And what you don't get when you come at it from a sort of historical perspective is 
I think you get the wrong definition of honor. Now I'll stress this as opinion here because we're we're looking so when we think of word honor, we think of chivalry and we think of fair play and we think of cricket and you know always always bang with a straight bat and being generally British and that sort of thing. So that that sort of honor. Whereas what actually you should be focusing on is not honor but reputation. And let, okay. let me explain in my usual interactive style. Okay, so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna come at something that that an insult is offered that may cause some offence, and then we we examine at that point how you how you go from there to ending up pointing guns at each other, risking death. So I could I'll stress I won't. I'm just using this as an example. <laughs> But I could wander onto your charming podcast and go, good Lord, Jem, your podcast's awful and your books are worse. Now, you're going to get quite How a... dare you, sir? <laughs> I demand satisfaction. <laughs> Precisely. To be fair, his editor says that all the time anyway. <laughs> Shut up, you. <laughs> now, you've put a lot of work into this, both the podcast and the books. And, the, you know, that's the sort of thing, the sort of insult that's going to cut right at your core. I, I'm but, so hurt. Let me ask you one serious question. Well, two serious questions. Number one, is it worth dying over? And number two, is it worth doing a life sentence in Wormwood Scrubs for the willful murder of me? Obviously, the answer to both those things is absolutely not. But I would guess, and going to the psychological side of things... Because, yeah, every time I've kind of read about a, a duel, it's like, really? You know, oh, you know, how childish are you? But I think your name, your reputation just simply meant more 200 years ago than it did now. Well, yes, because your reputation actually does you a lot more good in those days than than it is now. And when I looked at this and I was starting to think, is this worth fighting over? Is this worth dying over? Well, clearly, for some way, it is. Because there are about 800 duels that take part in Hyde Park alone. That's just one park. So there's got to be something there that makes this worth doing. Well, hang on. From hey, you said 800 duels over what time frame? Because that's oh, if it's in a week, that's... that's a no, it's not in a week. We are talking probably over about 100 years here. Okay, but that's okay. still... Dueling is not common. Eight, yeah, that's eight a year. That's almost yeah. once a month. Yes, a good sort of six, seven weeks, there'll be a duel for it, you know, as a general average. Hyde Park is the one where they all go to duel. There are other parts, but that's your main one. Um, but you come at this from the point of view of, right, well, why? Why would 800, well, in fact, 1,600 people go to this park to engage in this thing if it's just for something as casual and ridiculous as honour? And that's when I started to look at, well, actually, what do we mean? And what is the danger of losing your reputation? And once you start to look at that, it becomes a whole lot less bizarre. There are bizarre duels in that, and believe me, I will come to the ones that are pretty pretty insane. But when you look at who fights duels, the bulk, and we are talking about 90% of duels that are fought here, are fought between military officers, particularly army officers, the Navy less so. And that comes down to the same thing that I mentioned when talking about body snatching. Money. Another quick question for you. Do either of you have an older brother? You're either of you a second son? I, I am a second son. You are a second nope. son. Right then. Well, Greg, 
you know, you're strutting about re Regency London, you know, taking in the world, you know, 1801, 1802. You are the second son of a, how wealthy a family would you like to come in from? Oh, well, I'll, I'll go all the way. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm upper class, me. Yeah, probably. I sound yeah, don't but... I? <laughs> right then. Yes. So with your stupefying levels of family wealth, <laughs> you are in line to inherit the square root of virtually nothing. You might have a bit of money left aside, but that family fortune is going to your older brother. So how do you make a family fortune? You join the army. Yeah. And how you do that is your father, particularly if you're stupefyingly wealthy, may take you at the age of 14. Now, the age of 13, I got frog marched to the local news agents for a paper round. Similar, but not quite as extreme. So you get taken by your father and your father would purchase you a commission in a regiment as an ensign, the base level of officer. Okay, probably about 14, 16, so something along those lines. And you've be, that commission has been bought. You, you've become an officer by virtue of buying your way in. Now, what your plan is then is that you start as an ensign, but over the 20, 25 years of fighting with that lovely Napoleonic War that's just round the corner, you can fight with lovely blue-blooded glory, get yourself promoted, sharp style, up to lieutenant colonel, okay? And then when you come to retire, you can sell that commission. But you can still buy commission. It doesn't have to be down to bravery. You could just sun, sun yourself in southern India and just keep buying a colonel a seal or, you know... Yes, you can. What you can do is you can you can go in as an ensign, you can sell your ensigncy and promote yourself up to, say, lieutenant, and then you can go up to captain from there and you can buy your way up. But you're not really improving your lot as a second son there. What you want to do is you want to start getting promoted. And it's not just for bravery. It could be just basically being good at your job or being, you know, being a good politician and things like that. The idea being is that you go in at about £300 as an ensign for a straightforward infantry regiment up to about 800 pounds for that to an ensign for something like the lifeguards or the household cavalry or something like that okay and as you go that 20 years you then go up go up the ranks you come to retire a lieutenant colonel and then you are selling that for about eight and a half thousand pounds if it's a short regiment there's a smaller regiment or you are somewhere in the region of 12 and a half Thirteen thousand pounds. If you are looking at a lieutenant colonelcy of, say, the lifeguards, or really prestigious regiment like that. Now, take that into modern money. You are talking about paying about eight and a half thousand pounds to join the army and selling your commission for the best part of three quarters of a million. Now, but the other way of putting it into is sort of like you could absolutely get a very large house at the end of all of the way well, you'd have the townhouse and then you'd also have the cottage in the Cotswolds kind of thing yes and you can buy land with that and you can start other things that will generate income and it's your way as a second son of creating that family fortune for your dynasty that's going to get them passed down to your first son or it is your method of just living the life of riley so that rich enough to well you know rich enough so that when you go senile you're actually eccentric and not senile yes yeah absolutely now, here comes the problem, because at any point during that career, if you're considered to be a coward, you're going to get cashiered out of the army, which means basically you get fired and they keep the money. And at that point, you've got no real discernible life skills because you came from your stupefyingly wealthy aristocratic background. Your elder brother has inherited anything. You've got your, your you know, your 
career is shot because you're not going to get back in the army, even with a commission, with a coward's rap under you. You're not going to be able to really inherit anything else. Nobody's going to marry you, so you can't marry into money at that point. And you've got no skills to which to forge any sort of income. So, uh, yeah. Um... When you say nobody's going to marry me, that is a, a reference to my losing the cowardice. That's not just you looking at my face and going, Look, nobody's going to marry you, mate. Come on. <laughs> Hey, this is fair. You can't see how gorgeous Greg is, but it does get the way you set this up, Paul. It sounds like Greg remains a vegetarian, is very concerned about animal welfare, but is standing on a pile of corpses of the men who got in his way. (laughs) But no, it's like think about it though. If you're going from that stupefyingly wealthy background and you've got, let's say, you've got yourself up to being a major or, or something like that, which is a good commission to be holding on to, even if you can't get yourself the next step up to lieutenant colonel something like that that is a good you know you're selling that for three hundred and fifty thousand to half a million in today's money now if somebody calls you a coward you stand to lose all that if the army seems to agree now is that worth risking your life for because you could be in the workhouse tomorrow as an aristocrat if you don't do something about this situation so somebody who's called you a coward some other people start to think that might have some legs to it. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you call that person out in a duel. That What do you prove by turning up to that duel? You are not a coward. And this is why so many of them you see where they don't actually fire at each other. They fire wide or they fire into the air or they just agree that satisfaction has been given. Because by pro- by turning up to the duel, you are demonstrating that you are not a coward. And that, that's the important thing that most duels can be drilled down to this one thing. It's the cowardice. There are others about reputation, but the ones that are fought most of all between officers tend to stem from the either direct accusation of cowardice or the inference to do so. And I've got a beautiful example here of go on. just the extremes that somebody needs to go to in order to do this sort of reputation restoration okay so it is a duel fought 26th of may 1789 on wimbledon common it is a duel fought between a colonel lennox and prince frederick the duke of york the second in line to the throne at the time okay now lennox is a lieutenant colonel lieutenant colonel of the dragoon guards i believe okay what starts this is the duke of york says that he overheard at his gentleman's club somebody make remarks about Lennox that Lennox shouldn't have stood for. And that that's it. Now, from there, can you see that Lennox shouldn't have stood for that? And if he doesn't do something about it, there is your inference and cowardice. Now, from something that sounds to us that trivial, think for a moment what the consequences must be if Lennox is actually prepared to call out the heir to the throne to meet in Wimbledon Common for a pistol duel that nearly kills the prince. Because you're not just looking at being hanged for willful murder there. You can, you killed the Duke of York. You're potentially looking at treason. You know, that is way worse, way worse crime there. You know, so to think I could be sitting here being killed, I could be sitting here with a rap for treason, or I could walk away and let this stand. Walking away and let this stand is not the best option for you. 
you can look at that situation and think, actually, what does it take for the best of those options to be actually going into effectively single combat with a member of the royal family? Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, it doesn't get much more high stakes than that. And I guess you would have to feel that there is no other option. It's really interesting that you put it that way because you do see, you see it in the news today. If this is my livelihood, I'll do anything to hold on to it. Now, I'm not talking about greed here. I'm talking about, well, as you say, you know, this is my chance of getting married. You know, this is my heritage, my my pension, basically. So that, that makes c- complete sense. I think I, I mentioned in the in the preamble that, you know, we started talking about jewels and because we had sort of slightly different opinions, Greg went, got to come back for, for this. So when uh, it's it's interesting, you are only talking about it from the point of view of, of the pistol era. But of course, you go back 100 years before your era. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Most duels were sword fights. It seems to me when I when I was looking into it, the lethality drops down because being shot in the face, there's no recovery for that. And there, I mean, well, of course, a marksman, a, a, a an officer, you're talking about two officers, they should have similar marksman abilities. Whereas if you're talking about sword fighting, I did actually at university, I fenced for my university. It is the most useless martial art out there. 
You know, it's like I'm in a bar fight, and it's like, all right, then go on, fight. Let, let's uh, let's create the peace here. All right, you know, a trunk of the body's on on guard. Have you brought your saber with you or whatever? Uh, I happen to do epe, but um, but yeah. So there's a whole other skill level there, and you can do something like first blood in that situation. It's like my point has been proven. Mm. Whereas in this situation, you get shot. I mean, there could be gangrene, you could hit a vital organ, uh, all kinds of things. And so it does seem to be a a bigger deal in, in that situation. Let's talk about some of the ones that aren't military. Like I, I, I referred to Castle Rand Canning. You know, these are two, imagine, whatever you may think of current politics, it would be very, very weird if two members of the cabinet were so angry at each other, they decided to have a duel. They decided to kill each other. That it's you know again it doesn't matter what flavor of, of politics you may have that would surprise you about either Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer. Regardless, if either of them I... actually felt or believed in anything that strongly, I would be surprised. <laughs> anyway, is it not true? And I'm I'm going to throw this out there. This is something I believe I know. Is it not correct that the distance between the opposition bench and the government front bench in the house of commons is two and a half sword lengths to avoid dueling in the house uh yeah i like that i also know and the reason why they all stand up and turn around and bow that's because in the old days they would have had a sword on them and it would just hit the back of the seat so that's why they turn around to bow which is weird so i guess there's been some some potential fisticuffs in in the house of parliament I'm led to believe as well, I've not been on a tour, so I can't actually prove this, but I have heard as well that in the members' cloakroom of Parliament, there is still a loop on every clothes peg for people to hang that sword. Yes, I don't know is. how many of them still bring them, but... <laughs> yeah. I think sort of like post 9-11, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to walk around with a sharp piece of metal with all the other politicians in the area. Not a good look. If we are talking about non-military ones, I, I have an example I want to share with you in France, but perhaps talk a little bit about those. What might be the trigger for those? So if we take as the one I mentioned earlier, that the Duke of Wellington fights his duel in 1826. I should know, it's favourite year for body snatching, but yeah, 1826. <laughs> now that is courtesy of the Earl of Winchelsea said at the time, and this is almost quote, because I'm not going to use parliamentary language, but it'll still be polite. It says, The man is sowing the insidious seeds of popery throughout every annal of the state. That was basically what Winchelsea had to say about Wellington. Wrong stuff. Agile. Very strong yeah. stuff. For those of you that would like that in English, basically what they're saying, what Winchelsea is saying is that Wellington doesn't actually have the courage to be open about his Catholic emancipation legislation. So he is seeding it in everywhere. Now, there's a couple of things that then see this logically lead to a duel. And it's, again, coming at these issues where you've got to protect your own reputation because your reputation is everything. I mean, okay, while you're prime minister, I don't see you going further up the greasy pole, but that might cost you your seat in the Lords if you haven't got the reputation. Certainly, if you're a junior more junior backbencher, that cushy job in the foreign office you're after, well, you're going to need patronage for that, and that's going to need reputation. Okay, so you're going to need to, and this will come as a shock to politicians today, but you need to have integrity, trust, be dependable, and be of good character. If those go, then your livelihood is gone. Okay, remember, you're not really being paid much as a member of parliament at the moment. What you want is the cushy jobs that go along with those things, that being your livelihood. Now, 
the first consideration there that ends up leading this to be to being a duel is though you're saying this to the Duke of Wellington, who is a long-standing military person, you know. So that, yeah, that kind of culture of you're not calling me a coward, you're not telling me that I haven't got the stones to do this. I'm going to answer that in the way that a soldier would answer that, the way that an officer would answer that, which is then call you out for a duel. Secondly, remember that. We have a thing called parliamentary privilege, which means you cannot be sued for libel for something that is said in Parliament. So if something that is said in Parliament is going to damage your reputation, then you have got no means of legal recourse to actually clear your name on that point. So if you're being inferred inferred as being a coward in Parliament by another politician, then you may want to call that person out and therefore demonstrate that you are in fact not a coward. And again, comes down to this theme that's underlying most of the duels, at least the sensible ones out there, that comes down to this reputation of cowardice, because this really this is the only thing that the duel proves. You mentioned in the survey, you know, you can do first blood, my point is proven. Well, no, all that's proven is I'm a better swordsman than you are. Yeah. If we have a duel over whether or not the sky is green on a Wednesday, if I cut your nose off, it does not make the sky green. It does not make me right. That duel served no purpose whatsoever. And that's the thing. The duel has got to serve a purpose. It's got to be there to restore that reputation. Now, a a, a good example, a, a good example with going out into the civilian world is one of my favourites, the uh, last fatal duel that is fought in Scotland. And this is August 23rd, again, 1826. It is fought between a David Langdale, who's a draper's merchant, who shot and killed his bank manager, and I'm sure I can hear all the respects <laughs> going up. Get in line for him now. Yes, absolutely. We could all salute that. Yeah, he shot and killed his bank manager, George Morgan. Now, what started this dispute was basically Morgan reneged on a loan. He was going to loan Langdale about a thousand pounds in order to keep like drapery business going, which was going quite well. And then at the crunch time, Morgan rescinds that loan and at that point Langdale can't pay any of his suppliers or anything like that his business reputation is absolute ruins and so this dispute goes on for quite some time yeah there's it's not the case with a duel that like an insult happens and the following morning you turn up in Hyde Park with a friend and a couple of pistols and have at it you know you are talking about six months at least of kind of dispute resolution going on by people during this time morgan's attitude towards langdale gets worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where this reaches a peak where he actually horse whips langdale in the street now that that was behavior so abominable that actually morgan's friend refused to act as his second um but from there he's going right well now i've been shown up in the street i've got to do something about this i've been you know i again the cowardice coming in there but I've also got to restore my reputation. This reputation has been so important to me that I need to stand there where, you know, people are aware that I've stood and faced death in defense of this. So I am not some idle person that's just not paying my bills or anything like that. I'm prepared to face life, limb, danger in doing so. And it's quite, it's quite an interesting duel because Morgan had had a long career uh, in the Marines. Uh, he was a very good shot, a very good shot. Langdale, the first time he ever held a gun was this duel. He didn't even practice because that would have been unfair. And Morgan missed and Morgan got shot clean through the heart. 
somewhat accidentally by by Langdale. But again, it all comes down to this reputation and cowardice rather than this idea. So Langdale at that point fled the country. Uh, He actually came back seven years later and handed himself in, uh, at which point he was he was prosecuted for manslaughter. But he was acquitted. Now, one of the things is I haven't as yet gone and looked at the trial record for that one. Trial records at that time can be remarkably hard to get hold of because you can get newspaper reports and things like that. Uh, But basically, he is acquitted on the basis of provocation, extreme provocation. So I just want to sort of continuing the theory of the, um, I think it's a very good theory about the sort of reputational side of things. I I want to bring up at some point one where we don't know what the causes were, which is really weird. And it's quite an important one in France. But the, the one I want to mention is it's now become world famous um, Alexander Hamilton versus Aaron Burr. Now, you're talking about the vice president of the United States, the sitting vice president, having a duel with a founding father. Uh, you know, it is an absolutely insane scenario, which is obviously this is shown in the Hamilton musical. Mm-hmm. And there is actually a song in it called the Ten Jewel Commandments, which goes through 10 stages of, uh, yeah, and you made things. It's sort of like, you know, you need to get a second. You talked about just then about, or the previous one with the Duke of Wellington, about the sort of six months backwards and forwards, trying to see if there was yeah. a, a way to, to to solve this. And as you say, and Hamilton does a good job of this, it shows you that it isn't like, I'm offended, you know, we're meeting in the forest tomorrow. It goes backwards and forwards. There is a routine and ritual, and it's it's done in a rap style, a Grammy-winning, Emmy, whatever, a Tony, uh, it won loads of stuff, uh, Hamilton. But it's really, really good. And it shows you that there are actually multiple jewels that were done at this time for various different things. Picking up on your point, it's just a it's a wonderful gag. His son, before he dies, to, his son has to go and fight a jewel. They go, where is this jewel? And it's just one line in the in the music guys. It's in New Jersey. Mm. Everything's legal in New Jersey. And a number of historians have pointed out, it's like, no, no, a dueling wasn't legal anywhere. But why do you think it would be legal in one specific state? You know, that's not you know, murder is not a legal thing. But you know, it's a good line. It's, it gets a laugh. But but yeah, so it, it's this insane situation that the vice president of the United States shoots him. And is then not convicted for anything. Now, I, I ended up that the weird thing about it was I was writing the American Presidents and 100 Facts and I was reading up about Alexander Hamilton about the same time that Lin-Manuel Miranda was reading about Hamilton. The difference is I thought this is a really interesting story. Even though he wasn't a president, I need to at least get one fact about Hamilton into the book, American Presidents and 100 Facts. Whereas Lin-Manuel Miranda read the same stuff as me and went, I need to turn this into a musical. And that's why he's a genius and I'm not. Because there's, <laughs> there's nothing in Alexander Hamilton's life where I think you're going to think going, this is, this is full of catchy tunes as he sets up the treasury. Although, to be fair, if you have seen the unreleased first draft of The American President in 100 Facts, Jem did write the original 100 Facts in rap form and was told... <laughs> <laughs> God bless you there, Greg. But I just have to feel I have to end that even though this guy did not go to prison for shooting and murdering a man, there's this weird thing where he ended up buying a lot of land in the Midwest of America, and there were rumors that he was going to try and set up his own country. So he ended up going to court over treason. Again, he didn't go to prison, but it absolutely destroyed his career. Because are you really going to vote for somebody for, for somebody for president who might have committed treason? That's in no way referenced to this year whatsoever. Honest. This is the the Hamilton Bird duel is 
is a really interesting one. And it kind of highlights this area where things are different in other countries. They they have completely different ideas and attitudes. If you go friend, the French dueling is mostly about killing your opponent, which is why sword dueling carries on being popular there. And American dueling, well, I'm not even going to comment on the American mindset. Yeah, you know, you have a constitutional right to bear arms. It's pointless to have all these guns lying around that nobody's using. But Burr fights that duel. Burr wins that duel. And unlike a lot of cases in the UK, doing so absolutely destroys his reputation. He was accused of cheating. He was accused of having practiced. Um, He was accused of Hamilton firing wide and then Burr really taking his time to make sure that he does a lethal shot. There were all these accusations throwing around. This is actually one man who comes out of a duel unscathed. He doesn't improve his life at all. One weird thing that I've noticed, both in that and in the previous discussion, it's come down to this question that practicing beforehand was somehow seen as dishonorable. Instead of, you just assume if somebody's going into a duel or I've got a duel in the morning, you know, I might practice first, but that was seen as somehow against the rules. So again, what are you trying to achieve when you go into your duel? And this is the important point here. It's like, are you going in to survive the duel, which is what you want to do, and come out of that duel as, I am not a coward and I've shown it, okay? Or are you going in to kill your opponent? Yeah, one's honourable, one's not. Yeah. Also, one manslaughter, one willful murder. So by not practicing, you're kind of saying, ah, I just got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not hey, about whether or not you kill him. It's about whether or not you've got the courage to stand there and face that. That's the important yeah. bit here, okay? And this is why pistol dueling is is de rigueur for the UK, because their dueling culture is about protecting reputation and demonstrating you're not a coward. It doesn't actually matter if you kill your opponent or not doesn't matter if you wound your opponent or not you know in both the examples that i'd given earlier on it's like wellington and winchelsea winchelsea just fires into the air you know the duo the duke has turned up he is definitely not a coward winchelsea fires into the air it is also said that the duke of wellington fired wide now that could be true or it could be that wellington's just an awful shot very good general apparently rubbish soldier yeah, same with Aaron Burr. I mean, he served in in the in the War of Independence, and and yet he he was a terrible shot. It was known, and therefore he kind of the one time he got lucky was the one time he really didn't get lucky, uh, as it were. But just a couple of other points, and sort of bringing it into the world of movies. It is interesting how dueling is shown in the film. So I mean, there is, and I've already mentioned this in the preamble, the last duel, which is actually about the last form of trial by combat, which yeah. is a very different thing. But then you've got the movie Highlander where there's a sword fight and it's played for laughs because Christopher Lambert is immortal and therefore this other guy, she keeps stabbing him and he keeps getting up again. And then John Wick 4, it, it sort of culminates in a sort of quasi-duel. And going back to your point about, about the practising, John Wick has spent two hours prior to this murdering people with pistols. He has had so much practice that uh, definitely, definitely this is considered first-degree murder. But then again, he's already guilty of creating i don't know genocide because he has killed so many people genocide specifies a race john wick kills everybody he's an equal opportunity murderer. Yes. That, that's yes. for sure yes um soon you mentioned how it's portrayed in films i know you're going to be begging me to talk about the duelists but i'm actually going to not oh come uh, on most no <laughs> mostly because i haven't actually seen it but i am aware of the duel that it covers and i have of course it's we're back to swords there not guns yes yeah. 
I have questions. Oh, so I just sort of you. briefly jump in there. For people who don't know, The Duelists is a mid-70s movie, and it's Ridley Scott's first film. You could say he's kind of obsessed with it, because one of his last, well, most recent films is The Last Duel, and it's got Harvey Keitel in it, and it's set in the Napoleonic era. And a lot of people have said, you want to see the most realistic portrayal of what an actual sword duel would be like, because like people cough and there's false starts and people take their shirts off because they don't want to sort of like cause extra infection in the wounds. You're either going to get hit or you're not. It's a really good first movie. Simple as that. His second movie was Alien. Uh, anyway, I will kick it back to Paul. Yeah, it's a good idea of what a sword duel or what a sword fight looks like. The actual duel in question that it's based around was two French officers who, and I haven't studied this one in graphic detail because it's not a British one. It's not so much that they fight a series of duels over like a 10, 12, 15 year period. It's that they really spent 15 years trying to fight one duel that actually ends this dispute. And again, going back to my point earlier, if the consequences of fighting a duel are as immediate and as harsh as is being made out, then you you do not take 15 years to fight that duel because that ship will have sailed. In fact, that ship will have sailed, circumnavigated the globe and come back with fine spices from the Orient. You know, your your reputation is going to... If you, you know, if... if you challenge me to a duel and then I come up with some spurious excuse for how we're going to fight the duel, but we're not going to fight the duel for another year. I suddenly look a bit more cowardly than I did before. You yellow belly. Exactly. Exactly. But there are, uh, there are a few areas of pop culture that do dueling particularly badly uh, in terms of absolute howlers. And there are areas. An example. Uh, example. One of my favorite films. I absolutely love this film, but the duel in it is almost 100% wrong. And that is the classic Highwayman romp, Plunkett and McLean. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Pumping good movie. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. You should see it. It is incredible. Take your historian head off and enjoy the ride. Oh, okay. All right. I'm just going to throw this out because there's no way I'm going to do an episode on it. Today, I happened to see a movie I've never, uh, never either seen before or even heard of before. It's from 2016. It's called The Free State of Jones. It's the true story of a bunch of Southerners during the U.S. Civil War who separate from the rest of the South and uh, pro-black people. It stars Matthew McConaughey. A lot of money was put into it. And it, it, it was just all like, how, how have I never even heard of it? But it's a classic example of one of these films that's clearly trying to win Oscars and is so busy being worthy, it fe- forgets to be entertaining or interesting. You know, the, the two things I managed to get out of it are racism is bad and <laughs> war is bad. And I'm going to say I knew those two things before I started watching it. But anyway, so yeah. I, I digress. I just had to throw that in there somewhere. Um, I'm going to leap in. I'm going to leap in for a second as well while we're all recommending films because I don't know if either of you have seen this. This one I'm quite sure is completely accurate, but absolute recommendation to everyone as we're talking about dueling is to go online and see a film called The Duel at Blood Creek. It's a short film by a director called uh, Leo Burton. Can't recommend it enough. It is a fantastically funny short film. I'm also popping up with my editor's hat on to say uh, we're looking at the time running long, so moving towards a conclusion. Okay, I've got one other person I want to say, and then I'm kind of kind of done. Are you okay with that, Paul? Okay. Okay, fine. So the, the one I want to jump back to France, and the saddest duel I've ever heard of is the one of Galois. Now, he just happens to have the same name as cigarettes. There, That is a complete coincidence. He did not invent the cigarettes, but he was 20 years old when he had a duel. 
And from the age of about 17, 18, he had shown incredible gifts of being a mathematician. And what's truly tragic about him is he ended up getting embroiled in a duel with a cavalry officer. The thing is, we have no idea why. Best guess, it was over a girl, but we don't even know that for sure. We don't know why he didn't back out of it or anything like that. It wasn't going to affect his career in any way. But the thing is, the night before the duel, he just wrote everything he had in his head down. And he even put in the margin, if only I had more time. It's a desperately sad thing. And it took decades for the mathematical world to go through his, his just spewing out his thoughts. And it was all right. And, you know, it's like if the guy had just lived another 10 years, he could have launched all kinds of amazing mathematics, potentially perhaps help us in the world of physics as well. But it just wasn't to be. He was cut down at the age of 20 in a duel. That was a uh, pistol duel as well. So, I mean, that's an incredibly sad one. An example of absolutely, Paul, I, I absolutely hear you and agree with you on the uh, reputational side of things. But it is also worth pointing out not every single one fits in that category. And this is another one. This is an example of one where there's a big question mark over again huh? and such as life. So yeah, uh, I just is, had to put that one in. There, This is a kind of thing you find when you look into France and dueling is it makes less sense. And I'll be your hands up. I haven't worked out what's going on in France yet. But staying with the idea of French dueling, though, I did mention that I'd referenced some bizarre duels. Oh, um, yeah. It's kind of close. So if we want to close on a little laughable high i've got well basically three that i would think two so the french one in question may the 3rd 1808 it is a monsieur grand prix and a monsieur de piquet and they are french academics of believe paris university they have a falling out over a girl and okay so far so average yes exactly now so the the challenge is issued and accepted, but they actually state that because they're because they think on an elevated plane, they should settle their score on an elevated plane. So their duel is for fifteen hundred feet above the Paris rooftops in hot air balloons with blunderbusses. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see how this is going to end. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, okay, what happened next? All right, it's important here, because I understand you two are friends, and if I was to call Jeff, Jem out for a duel, I imagine Greg, you would be acting as his second, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. Do they have oh, extra hot air balloons? <laughs> so, well, what happens is that the shots are exchanged, and Monsieur, Monsieur Piquet's balloon is pierced, and he plummets, it's actually written in the newspaper report, he plummets 1,500 feet to his death, along with his second, who is oh. in the same balloon with it. So before oh. you accept the honour of being a second, it is worth bearing that in mind. Um, and you mentioned earlier about military officers being good shots. Yes? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> so, we have 1796 in Cobham in Surrey. Now, I don't know what starts this duel, but I do know what finishes it. And it's fought between a Major Sweetman and a Captain Wilson. Uh, It's fought in a remote field in Cobham in Surrey. And there is a standard, although this is not standard, what we would consider standard, the 12 paces and turn and shoot. Their seconds are there. Your seconds actually sort of set out everything of the rule. And the only rules of a duel are what the two principals agree. So they're, they're there at 12 paces apart and they're ready to present and fire at which point major sweetman calls out because major sweetman is that short-sighted at that range he cannot see his opponent this would be deemed unfair so he calls out and asks if they can close the distance to a point where he can see 
Captain Wilson agrees, the second agrees, and so they close to a distance of four yards apart, which is about the length of my living room. <laughs> Major Sweeban pays dearly for that because he's shot through the heart, clean dead. Wilson is shot in the leg at four yards, which gives you an idea of just how bad Sweeban's eyesight was. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that, that you, both men should have gone down on that one. That's, yeah, if you shoot somebody in the leg at four yards, that's on you. Indeed. And I'm going to round off with one that probably has no place on a history podcast that I and I will explain why. And this is a 1792 known as the Petticoat Duel, a Lady Am- Amelia Braddock versus a Mrs. Elphinstone. And the story goes that over an afternoon tea, Mrs. El- Mrs. Elphinstone commented to Lady Braddock the following phrase. Well, you were a beautiful woman once. <laughs> yes. I could see it. When I read that line to my wife, she winced. Uh, at which point, Mrs. Elphinstone is apparently ejected into the street and there follows six months of frantic letter writing where she's urged to retract it and she won't and so forth. And this escalates to the point where the two ladies meet in Hyde Park to settle things with pistols. And so at uh, eight yards apart, uh, they take their shots. The first, uh, first shots are exchanged. The first casualty is Lady Braddock's hat that is shot clean off. At which point, the seconds intervene to try and get a reconciliation. However, no reconciliation is coming forward. So the ladies pick up swords and have at it with swords. <laughs> At which point, Mrs. Elphinstone is wounded in the arm and consents to write a letter of apology and they both go their separate ways. Brilliant, isn't it? Unfortunately, I cannot oh, corroborate this in the least. I'm not saying it's a lie, okay? But I can't find coverage of it anywhere. It is mentioned... In almost every book on dueling that I have, but I actually cannot corroborate that back to any sort of source. To I can't even find trace of an actual Lady Almeria brother. Yeah, there's Elphinstone's first name. Not that too good to be true, isn't it? It It is a great one to finish on. It's a lovely story, and I will always tell it. But I will always throw that caveat in there. And let's just be clear. We're not saying that it's not real. We're not saying it is real because I know that one of Jim's biggest problems he's faced as a historian was the time he said King Arthur wasn't real and took an awful lot of backlash. So we're not saying this isn't real. Don't come at us. (laughs) Yeah, if you are a descendant of either of these ladies, uh, well, actually, we'd probably like to know that. Thank you very much. Please corroborate. That's all it is. Uh, But look, Paul... As always, you've been an absolutely fabulous guest. Thank you so much for sharing these these marvellous stories and adding a different angle to the podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, to everybody else, there'll be another podcast coming out soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 